I'm eager to preach to you God's word this morning. If you weren't in the Bible class earlier, got to explain more about what we're doing in Ethiopia. We'll get to do more of that tomorrow night. But this time, I'm excited to share with you the wonderful love of Jesus found in the gospel. Would you please turn with me, if you would, to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 3. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 3. Our special focus will be on verses 14 through 19 this morning. Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. These are the words of God. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, who are rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these words that you've given to us this morning. Thank you for these words that tell us of Christ's deep affection for us. Would you affect our hearts through these words? Lord, our hearts are often untilled ground that we need your spirit to come and make ready to receive your gospel. Would you do that now, spirit? Would you make us ready to receive your gospel by faith? Would you help our hearts to believe this gospel as we hear it preached this morning? Christ, would you come and preach to my heart? Would you come and preach to all of our hearts this morning? We desperately need you. In Jesus' name, amen. These words we just read in Paul's prayer for the Ephesians might be the loftiest of all Pauline prayers. And what he asks for here in these verses is nothing short of a miracle. He asks that the Ephesian believers would be filled with all the fullness of God. This language might catch us off guard, right? Have you ever experienced something that can be described like this? What's Paul talking about? What kind of what experience is he referring to when he prays for this? I want you to imagine with me, you go to lunch after church, and you run into a friend who goes to another church in the city, and you ask them how their service was, and they reply with Paul's words here, it was wonderful. The Spirit empowered us. Christ dwelt in our hearts, and we were filled with all the fullness of God. What comes to your mind when you think of that? If you're anything like me, you picture charismatic chaos in that moment. Tongues being spoken and lengthy prophecies being proclaimed. You may picture emotional music, healings. Maybe even someone was risen from the dead. 
And perhaps the pastor comes up to preach after all of this and he says, well, I guess there's not time for the sermon this morning, guys, so everyone can go home. If you're anything like me, you'd be concerned for your friend. You might even say this to your friend, hey, can I help you find another church? What if I started the service this morning and I prayed these very words? You might say, Brian, who is this guest speaker that you had come in that we might be filled with all the fullness of God? What is this talking about? If you're anything like me, the last thing you would expect is what Paul means when he prays these words. What is he praying for when he uses this kind of language? Look at verse 19. He prays that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You see, Paul is praying that the Ephesian believers would have a deep understanding that Jesus loves them. And why does he pray this? Because while Paul was a great theologian, yes, he was also a good pastor. And he knows it's easy for us to know the truths of the gospel without feeling and experiencing the truths of the gospel. For, for all of the wonderful realities of Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 to go into our heads without ever sinking down into our hearts. And so this is why after Paul spends three chapters diving deeply into the theology of the gospel, he prays for meaningful experiences of knowing and feeling Christ Jesus' love for us. And why is that? Because the gospel reaches its full intended effect in our lives, not when we have mastered it, but when it has mastered us, when it has so overcome us that we not only know the wonderful truths of the gospel, but we feel fully convinced of the wonderful truths of the gospel. Because it's possible, isn't it? It's possible to know that we're adopted by God and still not feel wholly loved and accepted as his children, isn't it? It's possible to know that God has given us the righteousness of Christ and still feel like we need to earn his favor. And in our text this morning, it's possible to know that Jesus loves us without feeling that Jesus loves us. To say with our mouths that Jesus loves us while still harboring doubts in our hearts. What about when we sin? Does he grow tired of us? What about when we suffer? Is Jesus judging us? And what about when we feel alone and like everyone has abandoned us? Has our Lord left us too? And what about the dark moments when we've questioned Jesus or even thought unkind things about Jesus in our hearts? Does Jesus think unkind things back? In our text this morning, Paul prays that the theological truths of the gospel would become our experiential realities. And more specifically, Paul prays that we would feel perfectly and wholly secure in the love of Christ. Because God's great desire for us is that we would not only know that Jesus loves us, but we would feel that Jesus loves us. So we consider Paul's prayer this morning. Well, we'll consider first the wonderful realities of Jesus' love. And second, we'll see that God desires for us to feel the wonderful realities of Jesus' love. And then we'll end the sermon by looking at practical ways we can pursue experiencing Jesus' love in even deeper ways.
So first, the wonderful realities of Jesus' love. The wonderful reality of Jesus' love. While Paul does pray here for experiences of feeling that Jesus loves us in this text, we must first be careful to consider the objective reality of Jesus' love. Because whether we feel it or not, whether we feel it or not, Jesus loves every member of his church wholly and completely. In verse 17, Paul uses two word pictures to describe us as secure in Jesus' love. Do you see them? First, he says that we are rooted in Jesus' love. It's the picture of a plant, maybe a tree, whose roots sink deep into the soil. The tree is strong and it's steady. And because of the roots, the tree isn't shaken when the storms come and the winds blow. And second, it says that we're grounded in Jesus' love. That the picture changes here from a plant to a building whose foundation is the love of Jesus. So like the roots of a tree, the foundation of a building keeps it standing when the floods come and the dearth beneath it becomes unstable. So my dear friends, the, picture of these two, the point of these two pictures is in this is we are secure in Jesus' love. We are firmly held in Jesus' love and we won't be uprooted. The building won't collapse and we're not going anywhere because the love of Jesus is the most secure reality in all the universe. When life's storms come and difficulties try to shake us, what keeps us standing? What keeps us standing is not our resolution to stand strong. It's not uncertain hopes that things will get better. It's not just pushing through what keeps us standing is the unshakable love of Jesus. And we can put all of our confidence in it. And while these truths are certainly comforting in the English, they're even more pronounced in the original, we could translate it like this. You have been rooted in love. And you have been grounded in love. This is obvious, but trees don't plant themselves, right? Buildings don't lay their own foundation. And the same is true of us. But we were rooted and grounded in the love of Christ by another. We didn't plant ourselves in Jesus' love. No, we were taken and we were planted in His love by sovereign love. And before we ever knew Jesus, He knew us. And before we ever chose Jesus, He chose us. And before we ever loved Jesus, He loved us. And if Jesus loved us first, then there's no more secure place than his love because none of it depends on us. It all rests on him. This means that he loves us not for who we once were or things we once did. He loves us not for who we are now or ways we're presently growing in holiness. And he loves us not for something we will do in the future that he's looking to. That's not the source of his love. The source of Jesus' love is himself. He loves us because he loves us. This means that Jesus isn't disappointed in us. There aren't unmet expectations, but rather Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday and today and forever, loves us yesterday and today and forever. And we can be confident of this because He rooted us and He grounded us and made us secure in His love. And when did He do that? 
When did he do that? When did he root us and ground us in his love? My friends, it was when he left his throne in heaven. When he became a man and he died in our place. Because in the gospel, and only in the gospel, is when he is able, because of the gospel and only because of the gospel, Christ is able to root us and ground us in his love, never to let us go. Do you remember Paul's words in Ephesians 5? Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And the good news is that for all those who have put their faith in Christ, if we are ever tempted to doubt the love of Jesus, we must look no further than the cross. How do we know that Jesus loves us? Because he died so that we would live. He didn't die because we were holy and without blemish. No, Ephesians 5 says he died to make us holy and without blemish. He didn't die for us because we were lovely in his sight. No, like Romans 5 said that we read earlier, he died for the ungodly. He died to make his enemies his friends. And more than that, he died to make his enemies into his bride. Which means that he loves his church fully. He loves us completely. He loves us more faithfully than any spouse, than any parent, than any friend, and his love will never let us go. Although our understanding of Jesus' love may fluctuate, the reality of his love stays the same. Paul is not praying here that Jesus would love us more. Because he can't love us more. Rather, he is praying that we would become more aware of Jesus' full and complete love for us that we are already rooted and grounded in. There's a difference then between the extent of Jesus' love for us and our perception of it. So that it's possible to not feel that Jesus cares for us at all, all the while being kept safely in his heart. Our circumstances and emotions may change, but the cross stands as a constant reminder of Jesus' everlasting love for us. In our darkest nights, in our biggest failures, in our toughest trials, the cross stands above it all and declares to us, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them until the end. Our understanding of Jesus' love can never exhaust the depths of Jesus' love. And there's always more to be discovered and known and felt. And that's why Paul prays this prayer. Because God's great desire is not only that we would know that Jesus loves us, but that we would feel that Jesus loves us. There's a scene in C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader where after going from one island to the next, and this is in the the book, not the movie. The movie's garbage, don't watch it. (laughs) But they're going from one island to the next, to the next, to the next. The voyagers come to this table. Wonderful feast prepared at it. Empty chairs all around. And they think to themselves, that must be a wonderful meal to eat and enjoy. I wonder who that's for. 
and they keep on going. They later find out that it was prepared for them. Do we feel that way with the love of Jesus sometimes? That it's a grand feast, it's wonderful, but it must be for someone else. There's no way, it's too good, it can't be for me. My friends, it's important before we talk about experiencing and feeling the love of Jesus, that we're fully fully convinced that his love is already for us. The table and the feast is spread and the chairs are open and there is no entry free because it's all by free grace. We must just sit down at the table and enjoy the feast. And so, while that feast is spread for us, the wonderful reality of Jesus' love is there. God desires in this prayer more. We see that God desires that we would feel and experience the wonderful realities of Jesus' love. Would you look back with me at verse 19? He prays that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That we would know what surpasses knowledge? Those are odd words, aren't they? Paul is praying here that we would know what can't be known. The love of Jesus that's so grand that it's beyond all human knowledge that we could never wrap our minds around it, that we could spend every moment of our lives meditating on it, and we still won't have even scratched the surface. And that means that whatever knowledge we presently have of Jesus' love, there's still wonderful depths to explore. And this means that a hundred billion years into the future, those of us in heaven will still be exploring the great love of Christ and not have gotten to the end of it. That's what Paul prays that we would know, this unknowable love. That's why Paul is praying here, not just for intellectual knowledge of Jesus' love, but he's using the language of experience here, that we would know what can't be known. He wants us to know deep down that Jesus loves us. So when Paul prays for more profound experiences of intimacy with Jesus and more awareness of his love, this is the language that he uses. That the Spirit would strengthen us in the inner man. That Christ would dwell in our hearts and that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. We might hear language like this and think, aren't we already united to Christ though? Doesn't God already dwell in us? We're his new creation temple is what Paul just finished arguing for. And hasn't the Spirit already empowered us? Didn't all of these things happen in our conversion? Well, you'd be right. They certainly did. But do you remember who Paul's praying for here? Is he praying for believers or unbelievers? He's praying for Christians. So he's not praying here for union with Christ. He's praying for experiential communion with Christ. He prays that we would not just be positionally filled with God as his new creation temple, but that we would be experientially filled with God so we are deeply aware of his presence and goodness and affections for us. I love telling my daughter Lily that I love her. I love telling her that when she wakes up in the morning, and when she goes to bed at night. I even love sometimes telling her that I have a secret. I did this this morning. I said, Lily, I have a secret for you that I've never told anyone before. Can I tell you? She goes, yes. I say, come here. I love you. And she says, you've already told me that a million times. I'm like, I know, but I want to tell you again. We used to play this game when she was younger when I would say this. Lily, you know what? I love ukuleles. 
Oh, no, that's not it. I love unicycles. No, that's not it. I love you. And her anticipation would just build, and she would wonder. I remember one time she even looked at my wife and said, I wonder if he's going to say, I love you next. What if I stopped telling her that I loved her? Just because I'd already told her that years ago. She would feel unsure of my love and insecure in my love. She wants to be freshly reminded of my love. It's certainly true in our human relationships, but it's true with us with God as well. Yes, God has shown us the great, in the greatest possible way the depths of his love through the death of his son. And let me be clear, no act of love can ever surpass that. But he desires to come to us again and again and again and to reaffirm his love for us in our experience. Charles Spurgeon once wrote this, Oh, for a higher experience of knowing the love of Christ. It is one thing to hear the outward sound of love. It is another thing to feel an inward sense of it. It's pleasant to hear the rippling of the brook, but if you are dying of thirst, that silver music will not refresh you if you are unable to drink of the stream. So come, Holy Spirit, come, we beseech you. Take the things of Christ and glorify him by revealing them to our inmost souls. That's precisely what Paul is praying for here in his letter to in his prayer for the Ephesians. He's praying for an awareness of Jesus' love that's not just something we have heard of, but something that we know. Not just a stream that we see and hear from a distance, but one that we swim in and splash in and dance in until it soaks us down to the bone. That we would feel deeply with Paul in Galatians 2.20, Christ loved me and gave himself For me, yes, the church in general, but he thought of me. And as Paul tries to further describe this indescribable love in verse 18, he stretches human language to the breaking point. He prays this, that we would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. He uses language as if he's looking at an an incomprehensibly large object. And what is he measuring when he measures it? He is measuring the love of Jesus that is grander than we could ever know. The love of Christ that's so deep that no matter how far we have sunk, his love reaches down and loves us still. The love of Christ that's so long that no matter how far we've run, his love reaches out and loves us still. And the love of Christ that's so high and so wide that its patience can never be exhausted or extinguished. He prays that we be wholly convinced of this love so that we can sing with deep assurance, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, and boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. But there's a temptation here, though, I think, to believe that Paul is praying simply for a feeling in this text. But as we look back, he's praying for something grander than that. He's not praying for a feeling or fluttering emotions that our heart would skip a beat. No, he's praying the love of Jesus become 
an aware, deeper awareness in our lives, but not as if the love of Jesus were distant and impersonal. He prays, do you see it? That the Jesus himself would come and dwell in our hearts. Look at verse 17. He prays that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith. He prays the person of Jesus himself would come in an experiential way. He is not praying for giddy feelings or for fluttering hearts. He prays that Jesus would come so that we would know just how deeply he loves us. Paul is not praying that we would know about Jesus. Paul is praying that we would experience Jesus. See, just as there's a difference between knowing the truths of the gospel and knowing the gospel, there's a difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Christ. When we come to the gospel, we're not merely coming to a set of propositional truths and historical facts alone. We're coming to a living and breathing person. Charles Spurgeon once again helps us when he says this. It's a blessed privilege to know Christ doctrinally, but it's only the beginning, a stepping stone to intimacy with our Lord. Paul says the very same thing in Ephesians 3, or sorry, Philippians 3.10, when he cries out, Oh, that I may know him! My friends, if anyone knew the doctrine of Christ, it was our brother Paul, but he wanted more. He wanted Christ not just in his mind. He wanted Christ in his affections. He wanted Jesus in his heart. He wanted not to just know of Jesus Christ, but to know Christ himself, to feel the very heartbeat of Christ in the depths of his soul. And oh, that we might experience the same, that we might know Christ, that we might be so caught up in the splendid reality of his goodness that all other loves and joys seem so small in comparison. And oh, that we might be so aware that he has taken the great burden of our sin and nailed it to the cross that all other burdens seem to lose their weight. And oh, that we might be so enraptured with the glories of his excellent beauty that sin seems small and worthless and ugly in comparison. And oh, that we would feel so deeply that he will never leave us or forsake us that we can withstand the wind of rejection and slander from others because we have Christ. And oh, that we might know him in his deep, unending, never-failing, ever-faithful love for his bride. Oh, that we might know Christ. This prayer inspires us, doesn't it? It arouses our affections for Christ. We desire this intimacy with our Lord, do we not? But how does it happen? How does this happen? To our joy, our text answers that question. Because God doesn't want to leave us directionless when it comes to pursuing nearness to Him. He's given us means of pursuing Him. And our text answers this question first by giving us an overarching principle. And giving us three means of pursuing nearness to our Lord. First, the overarching principle. Do you see what Paul prays for in verse 16? He prays that we would be strengthened with power by the Spirit. When you think of being strengthened by the Spirit with power, what comes to mind? For me, it's certainly not the Spirit strengthening me so I would know Jesus' love more. But that's what Paul prays for here. And knowing how deeply Jesus loves us is not a natural thing. It's a supernatural thing. It's a ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
We cannot know even for one second how deeply Jesus loves us unless the Spirit would give us strength to understand that Jesus loves us. Well, what means does the Spirit use to make us more aware of Jesus' love? That's the overarching principle. Let me then give us three means the Spirit uses. First, we pursue deeper experiences of Jesus' love by meditating on the gospel. By thinking about the gospel. Do you see how Paul starts his prayer here in verse 14? He says this, for this reason. What's the reason? It's all the wonderful realities of the gospel in the first three chapters. We've been chosen and we've been adopted. We've been resurrected and eternally loved by God. These truths of the gospel serve as the foundation for knowing and experiencing the love of Jesus in the gospel. Because to know how much Jesus has loved us in the gospel, first we must know the gospel. If we desire to feel God's love for us, we must first understand how he has loved us. If you want to start studying the depths of the gospel so that you would feel this deep love of Jesus, let me suggest you just start with reading Ephesians 1 through 3. Read it slowly. Write down different ways Paul explores the glories of our salvation and then meditate on them later and come in faith, asking God to meet you and turn over the ways that Jesus has loved you through the gospel in your mind time and time again. It might look something like this. He has forgiven me fully and completely. Everything even the sin that I'm most ashamed of, even those words I wish that I could take back, but I can't, even the sin that no one else has forgiven me for, maybe even that no one else knows about, He's forgiven me. Thank you. And do that again with the kindness of Christ, and do it again with the patience of Christ, and do it again with the joy that Christ finds in you as his bride. And in this, we're pursuing nearness to God the same way that he pursued nearness to us through the gospel. Second, we pursue more profound experiences of Jesus' love through prayer. Through prayer. That's exactly what Paul is doing here in these verses, isn't it? He prays. And as we meditate on the gospel, we pray that the Spirit would come and empower us to know the deep love of Christ in the gospel as we meditate on it. Do we pray like this? Have you ever prayed like this? Maybe one of the reasons we feel so distant from God often is because we don't pray big enough prayers. Do we pray these kinds of prayers for our spouses, for our children, for the members of our church? And what would happen if we did? And yes, we should pray for daily provision for our needs. We should pray for victory over sin. But when was the last time that we fell down on our knees like Paul and prayed words like this? When was the last time we prayed that Christ would fill us and we'd be so aware of His love? When was the last time that we prayed like Isaiah in Isaiah 64, 1? Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake in your presence. And what would God do if we regularly prayed like this? For ourselves, for others, that the Spirit would come and cause us to know the love of Christ. And lastly, we pursue more profound experiences of Jesus' love through community, 
through community. That might catch you off guard, but look back with me at verse 18. Do you see what Paul prays? He prays that we would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints. With all the saints, what's the breadth and length and height and depth? Paul prays that we together would know and understand the deep love of Jesus, not separately, but corporately. And within the context of Ephesians, it especially happens as we pursue nearness to Christ with believers who are different than us. Perhaps you, in the pursuit of experiencing the nearness of Jesus, perhaps the next step just looks like having lunch with another member of this church. We pursue Christ when we fellowship with our friends. We talk about the ways that Jesus has loved us. We do it with our spouses and our children and family worship and late night conversations. In all of this, we're seeking to know God and experience God together. What Paul is praying here for is nothing short of a miracle. Nothing short of a miracle. And while we can say that Jesus equally loves all Christians, non-negotiable, He equally loves all Christians. We do know from experience that not all Christians feel equally loved by Jesus. I'm very aware there are people here that you've desired what I'm describing here for years. And you haven't experienced it. And maybe you're going through a lengthy spiritual winter. May I encourage you that this gift of the church, community, is especially for you. Let me encourage you that if you feel too weak to pray and too weak to meditate on the gospel, we, this church, would love to pray for you and love you in that. And the church is a safe place to share that you often feel numb to the things of God and you need help. And no one will judge you. In fact, I think the people you share it with will understand far more than you realize. There's no shame because the church is not a place for fixed people. The church is a place for broken people who don't have it all together. And the good news is this, the glorious news is this, that even when we feel so distant from God, Christ himself hung upon a cross and said these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And his death in our place, Jesus certainly took our sin. He certainly took God's wrath, but he also took God's abandonment as well. So that for all of those who trust in Christ, we will never be totally and fully abandoned. And while we all desire deeper intimacy with Christ, our Lord, who, though we have not seen him, we love him. Our great hope is not in a present experience. Our great hope is not in a present experience of knowing the love of Christ. No, our great hope is in a future experience. A future experience that every Christian will have of seeing Jesus face to face. Because one day, the cry from Revelation 21 will be heard. For all of those in Christ, behold The dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be be with them as their God, and they will see his face. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you.
that you have loved us in Christ and in this gospel. Would you cause the wonderful realities of your love to seek down deeply into our hearts that we might know and feel your pleasure, your goodness, and your love. And may you constantly, by your spirit, direct us back to that cross where you declared your eternal and everlasting love toward us. In Jesus' name, amen.